Welcome to another episode of Jamming with Jason. Hey, today I have my friend Tom Fox with me, and we're going to talk a little bit about compliance uh, because he just came out with a new book, the Compliance Handbook, second edition. And so, you know, again, even if you're not in compliance, you're going to want to stick around because Tom has been in this industry for a long time. And you never know what's going to come out on one of these episodes anyway. So whatever you do, stick around and listen to the entire episode. And let's roll that episode. Hi, I'm Jason Mefford, and you're in the right place to start transforming your career and life with this podcast. I've been in the trenches as an executive leader, and now I'm an executive coach and confidential advisor to executives all over the world. I use a multidisciplinary approach to improve learning that drives transformation by getting to the root cause in a practical, no-nonsense way. I love learning and sharing what makes people tick. You get both education and entertainment, since learning shouldn't be boring, right? But that's enough about me. This podcast is a combination of intuitive leadership, neural influence, and mental mastery to take your career and life to levels you've never thought possible. If you're wanting to improve yourself, develop stronger relationships professionally and personally, make quicker, better decisions, and become a more effective leader, then of course, this podcast is for you because you are going to learn how to manage emotions in yourself and others, avoid burnout, stress, and anxiety, master your mind, get people to listen and take action, and become a lifelong learner. And when you do that, you will have a positive mental attitude, executive leadership presence, and the skills to know exactly what to say and do in any situation. I'm glad you're here. So, let's get started. Hey, Tom, how you doing today, man? It's good to have you back. Doing great. Yeah, yeah I'm thrilled to be with you. I know, you know, you have, um, you have been in this space for a long time <laughs> um, and, and have had this compliance handbook out for quite a while, right? So, so I guess one, one of the questions just like right off is, why did you, you take like the compliance Bible that you already had and kind of create a second edition? What's... What's new or why'd you go through and do this? Sure, Jason. So uh, the original compliance handbook came out in uh, late spring of 2018. And then in uh, 2019 and 2020, we had some significant uh, releases of information from the Department of Justice. In 2019, we had the original evaluation of corporate compliance programs, uh, which was updating the 2017 version. Then we had the Department of Justice Antitrust Division come out with their evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which added some really interesting, uh, they were antitrust factors, but I thought applicable to anti-corruption compliance as well. And of course, under the uh, antitrust law, you have both civil and criminal jurisdictions. So they focused on that a little bit more. We also had OFAC come out with their version of a best practices compliance program once again, with a little bit different focus because it was trade compliance. So we had um, some significant information come out from the Department of Justice and OFAC. And then in 
June of 2020, the Department of Justice updated their evaluation of corporate compliance programs and really changed the focus in a couple of key couple of ways that I thought needed to be highlighted. And then uh, on July 1st, I think of 2020, the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission jointly came out with their update to the FCPA resource guide, which was originally released in 2012, which in my opinion is the single best resource guide for all things FCPA, not simply compliance. And so that I thought warranted an update. And I went through and uh, rewrote about 40% of the book. So there's a lot of new information in there. It incorporates the most um, uh, significant changes from uh, the Department of Justice, SEC, OFAC uh, perspective, and a lot of new information for the compliance practitioner as well. Well, and I know because, you know, <clears throat> living here in the U.S., you know, because a lot of people that listen might be international, but we have some crazy compliance <laughs> rules here in the U.S., right? I mean, we're probably, I'm guessing, probably about the most com controlled, compliant, regulated uh, country in the world, right? And so, and a lot of these ones that you just threw out there are some, some big names, heavy hitters. You know, when the SEC comes down and they start calling, you got to pay attention, right? And I remember because you you mentioned FCPA and some of the some of the updates. Because I remember, you know, back in the day, the the federal government pretty much said, "Look, we we expect everybody to have good ethics and compliance programs, but we're not we're going to really tell you what it is, right? It's like wink, wink." <laughs> we know it when we see it. And if you're not doing it, then we're going to beat you up. Right. And then I think there were some memos that kind of came out of the SEC, if I'm remembering right, that kind of gave a little bit of guidelines. That's where like those, those seven things that you usually think about were, were kind of came from. Right. But there's, there's been this evolution slowly, but it sounds like from what you're talking about the last couple of years, there's been a lot more guidance actually coming out of the government of what they're expecting. Right. Starting in about 2015, we started hearing, uh, this would probably be music to your ears, but much more emphasis on data, data analytics, and use of data in your compliance program. So obviously I'm a lawyer and data was not something we learned about in law school. Not that it was antithetical to the practice of law, but it was not something we focused on. So uh, when you couple the COSO 2013 internal controls framework with the DOJ emphasis on data, which was really emphasized in the 2020 update, we saw the DOJ say specifically CCOs had to have access to all corporate data, but more importantly, you had to use that data. You had to analyze that data. You have to have continuous monitoring and continuous improvement. And so this was really the, the most specific we'd heard the DOJ. So they've been talking about that in speeches and other things over the past three or four years, but we saw a real acceleration with the 2020 update. And now I think that's probably the biggest driver uh, in compliance innovation right now is how can you get a handle on your data? How do you find out what data you have? Then how do you analyze it? Uh, and then how can you incorporate that into a uh, compliance program for continuous improvement? So those that's what's really driving compliance now. And it's been interesting to see that evolution, but it certainly uh, picked up during the pandemic. And probably, I'm, I'm sure the coincidence of the uh, June 1 release date of the update to the evaluation 
was coincidental. Nevertheless, when it came out, it really got a lot of people's attention. And data is something that is uh, probably the most one of the most ubiquitous terms in compliance now. <laughs> well, it is. It, it's it's funny because as you're talking, <clears throat> you know, because I've always usually kind of held, you know, risk and compliance as two kind of separate things. But it's it, it seems like from what you're talking about that there is more of this confluence now of this, right? Is, is I mean, we see this from the ISO 31000 standard on risk management, right? They came out with it, they updated it a couple of years, I think it was 18 or 19, they updated that. And ISO now has been incorporating those concepts, those risk management concepts into their other standards as they're updating them. And so now it's almost like the government has come back and said, hey, everybody, compliance by itself, right? Let's start incorporating some of these risk management things. You know, like you said, it's got to be continuous. It's got to be, you know, have, have an improvement uh, because as you're going through, as you're looking at it and hey, by the way, everybody has data. So you guys should be able to start telling whether you're compliant or not, right? You should start kind of self-monitoring that. Is that, is that kind of what I'm hearing, what the, what's coming out? No, you're absolutely spot on. And one of the things I saw over the last year with uh, the pandemic was the acceleration of trends that have been percolating in 2017, 2018, and 2019 They accelerate ex exponentially. And coupled with the fact with, certainly from the legal kind of compliance perspective, the traditional way you would look at issues is you'd go do an investigation. You might do an interview. You might sit down and talk to some people. You might review documents. Well, that kind of all went out the window last year and really the only thing left was data and so it forced people like myself who had perhaps not used data primarily as the source for continuous monitoring or numbers uh, to to really embrace that because we had to and now that we've had to i think it's a much more efficient way much certainly much more holistic way and to your first point i think you're also spot on that we've had this uh, much more or greater recognition that this is just risk. Uh, we had pandemic risk last year. Now we've got return to work risk. We've got supply mm -hmm. chain risk. We've got third party risk. Uh, we have cyber cybersecurity risk. We have data privacy risk. And of course we have, you know, the social justice and diversity and inclusion movements that gained speed last year. So you have a reputational risk. How are you gonna look at those all? Uh, and it has to be really a holistic integrated approach. Well, and it's, and it's interesting because even when you think about, you know, risk in general, right? Why does the government come out with new laws, with new regulations? Because the government is trying to manage some risk, right, of, of businesses maybe operating in a way that they don't like, right? That, that ends up often having a very detrimental impact to the economy, to, to individuals, right, as well. And so they're trying to manage kind of like the, the, the business environment within the country by putting these, I'll, I'll use the word controls, right? Because everybody likes the word controls, but really a regulation is trying to force organizations to operate in a certain way to reduce that general public risk, right? And like you said, I think the pandemic has just really accelerated a lot of stuff that was already happening anyway. But it's it's interesting, you know, like you said, that that now they're focusing much more on data. And 
you know, in a way, because organizations should kind of know what's going on. They should be tracking what's going on. And as things change, they should be trying to get out in front of it, you know, whether that's compliance or just risk in general, right? Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I know you said, you know, about 40% of the book has been updated. So I'm guessing a lot of these, this data concept is brought into it or what are, what are kind of the main updates that you've done since the first edition? So the main updates were around data, they were around innovation, they were around manage, managing your third parties because in the compliance world, third parties are still viewed as, as the highest risk. <clears throat> and uh, once again, with the monitoring and updating in the uh, first evaluation that came out in 2019, there was discussions of root cause analysis and that was eventually added as an additional hallmark to the original 10 hallmarks of effective compliance program. So there's a discussion of how a root cause analysis is really different than a investigation uh, or an interview even. It's a different focus with a different uh, goals and why that's important. The joint ventures, which uh, whatever the business venture in it is and the types of business venture are only limited by our collective business imaginations, whether it's a JV, a teaming agreement, or anything else, uh, you had to figure out how to manage those. But the other thing that's, that really I saw in, in the bigger picture, Jason, was the, move, the moves that are being made uh, are really leading to greater business efficiency. And so originally compliance programs were written policies and procedures, written by lawyers for lawyers. Uh, the COSO framework of 2013 for internal controls was for a lot of people, including myself, just a revelation because I now saw the controls as the backbone of the compliance program. And that led to key performance uh, indicators with a lot of ways to measure efficiency in ways that I certainly hadn't been aware of before. And so that gave us this data. And if you can improve your business efficiency while making your compliance program more effective, I think that equates to greater return on investment. So we had a lot of that going on. And I think that's one of the big accelerants we saw from, from last year as well. If you're gonna look at your uh, spending, your gift travel and entertainment spend and determine that it's inefficient for the sales cycle, for the sales process, and you can reduce your spend to uh, gift travel and entertainment spend to government officials, you've saved money, you made your process more efficient, you're more compliant and you're probably going to get a better ROI from that sales team focusing on those customers. Well, so this is, it's, it's going in an in interesting way because, <clears throat> you know, like if we think about, like I said, it looks like compliance now is taking on more of kind of these risk management principles, right? Which one of them that ISO talks about is that risk management adds value to the organization, right? So that you shouldn't be spending more on managing risk than the benefit that you're getting. And I know for a long time, it's always been, oh, compliance is just something we gotta do. It's money we gotta spend. We hate doing it, but we gotta do it, right? To where now it sounds like it, it's, it's also having more of that value discussion and about ways to lead to these greater business efficiencies. The compliance just isn't about following that regulation, but it's also 
like you said, it's those controls in the background that are helping us actually run a better business as well, right? Because a lot of times, let me pick up. yeah. Yeah, let me pick up on that last point because that's really critical. Uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe three years ago, when certainly I thought about the management of risk, it was to protect the company. But my thinking evolved because if you properly manage risk, it's actually a business advantage. Mm -hmm. If you can respond more quickly because you have the controls in place to accept greater risk because you already have the controls in place to manage that risk uh, with oversight, with controls and the human element, it can make your business more nimble, more agile. And that's, I think, one of the things we saw last year, companies were able to pivot much more quickly when they could manage that risk. There was, you know, early on in the pandemic, a school of thought that, well, we'll just override these controls or we won't follow these controls because it's a unique situation. Uh, the companies that already had the controls in place and could just have greater risk management oversight were able to more quickly respond. And I think that played out uh, for a lot of different industries in the past year. So I'm really seeing that risk management now being thought of as a business advantage because you can respond more quickly. And one thing I've learned over the years is the greater the risk, the greater the potential profits. And if you can figure out a way to manage greater yep. risk than your neighbor, you're going to make more money. And so uh, I think we've seen a lot of that as well. Well, because that's that's one of the things, and I'll, I'll use the uh, you know ISO thirty one thousand on risk management because one of their risk response things they talk about is increase the risk. And I know when people read that, they're like, "What are you? What? What? No, no, no! Here we're for value preservation, right? We're, but but it's that point again of but those companies who can, who who have the processes and the controls in place, they can take more risk intelligently." And they can actually increase the risk and still have a higher reward, right? And so those are the ones that are going to end up winning more. But it's but it's interesting because this this dialogue that we're having kind of re, it reminded me of a lecture I sat through when I was doing my MBA many years ago, and this was before all of the environmental. You know, now everybody's like, oh, ESG, 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 right? This was before all the environmental push had happened, and I remember that. This professor, she was she was a very you know left wing, environmentally friendly person, and so she was, you know, kind of talking about the, the benefits of being an environmentally friendly company. And it, you know, most of us in the audience were like, "But this just costs more money. It costs more money, right? We can't. It's it's reducing profits." And and she stopped, and I remember her saying something like, "Why do you think that this just costs more money?" can't it also be an advantage for the organization? <clears throat> and I remember at that time, you know, a lot of us were still kind of thinking she was a little crazy, but it wasn't but a couple of years, you know, and all of a sudden we had these huge companies like Walmart going, holy crap, if I, you know, if I switch out all of the lights in my store to, you know, compact fluorescent instead, it's not only good for the environment, but I'm, I'm spending like 40% less in energy costs. Holy crap, right? So the minute that they decided that, there was huge investment and huge push, but it took that mindset shift. And it just sounds like we're starting to have some of that mindset shift now in the compliance area as well. It's not just a cost of doing business, but it's, it, it's an investment in, in doing good business, 
right? You're, you're spot on when, when companies talk about, well, we're going to reduce our carbon footprint. I immediately hear, how much is that going to save us? Uh, is it going to be environmentally friendly? Yes. Will it help our stock price? Maybe. But we will absolutely save money. Yeah. So it's interesting that we're kind of kind of coming that way. Now, um, I know I think, you know, the, the compliance handbook, I think you, you published through LexisNexis, right? If I'm remembering that right. So why, you know, LexisNexis, I always, I always thought that was a great term. I just love that the alliteration of it too, right? But, but maybe, you know, just, just talk for a minute. What, what is LexisNexis? Why did you choose them as somebody to, to, to publish a compliance handbook through? So LexisNexis is the world's largest legal publisher. And about uh, May of last year, uh, I got an email from them uh, telling me that they were going to start uh, a uh, compliance adjunct to their legal publications. And they wanted me to come on board as their first compliance author. And so I sat down with them, or I guess virtually sat down with them because it was in May and you know, worked out a contract. And I was at, I'm absolutely thrilled to be a part of LexisNexis because they literally are the world's largest legal publisher. They wanna start coming out with a compliance series and they, they focus on the nuts and bolts. How do you do it in you name the area? And so that's exactly what the Compliance Handbook is. It's the best nuts and bolts book, in my opinion, to doing a best practices compliance program. So I worked with them. I had, uh, they came in and uh, took over the editing role for my wife. So she was thrilled. About <laughs> she, that. she was happy, and, happy wife, happy man, right? So there you go. Exactly. So uh, that worked out well. And um, I'm going, uh, they uh, took over the publication. It was, uh, released and it's available in their bookstore uh, for immediate release now. Wow. Well, they were, they were a real pleasure to work with. I'd never worked with a professional editor before. So uh, obviously I bring a certain perspective to the process. They're bringing a very different perspective, a non-legal perspective. So when they would email me and say, this doesn't make sense, uh, you're, they were right. It may not make sense to someone without my professional background. And that meant it didn't make sense to a potential reader. So I really uh, learned a lot from that process and enjoyed that process. Well, and the nuts and bolts, I think, is is what's important because it's. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that's kind of the approach that this has, and that it is like that one place where people can go to actually get down to that level. Because so much of the time, you know, it's people people talk in theories and oh, this is the nice to do kind of thing, right? But it, but it leaves the people who are the practitioner that has to actually execute going, yeah, but what am I supposed to do, <laughs> right? So they, they get some big lofty goal or they get some theoretical thing pushed at them. But at the end of the day, they still have to execute. They still have to figure out how to make this work. And so it sounds like, you know, in the second edition that you're giving them more of the, here's how you would actually implement this at your company kind of step-by-step. Step. Uh, absolutely. So chapter one actually is 31 days to a more effective compliance program where I literally in 31 uh, different entries talk about how you can improve your compliance program with one or two things each day. And then each entry has three key takeaways. 
And each one of those takeaways are things you can do at little or no cost to uh, make your compliance more compliance plant program more effective that day. I keep that same format throughout the book in terms of every chapter, every entry has three key takeaways. Uh, a long time ago, I learned there's a lot of things you can learn in the law. There's a whole lot less that you actually need to know. So I try to give uh, the compliance practitioner that same approach. You can know a lot more, but here's the things you need to know. And here's three things you can do today to make your compliance program more effective. And I've had several readers of the first book tell me that that's exactly how they used it. They read it. It's very biblical, 12 chapters. So uh, you can read it is either the 12 tribes or 12 months, and you can read a chapter a month and with an entry each day, that's uh, 750 to 800 words and with three key takeaways, the things you can do that day to incorporate into your compliance program. It's designed for literally the company that doesn't have a compliance program all the way up to the Amazons of the world who wanna use it to uh, enhance or uh, upgrade their program as well. Well, that's good because I know, you know, when I talk to a lot of compliance people, the one thing that I hear often is, ah, I'm overwhelmed, right? There's so much to do. I mean, and so again, if you take even a mid-sized company here in the U.S., the amount of compliance that we have to do is pretty overwhelming, right? And and so I, I like that approach too of, look, just... Just take it a little bit at a time, right? It's it's like the big elephant. You eat a little bit each day, read a chapter once a month, you know, do this one little thing each day, and you're gonna get closer and closer, right? Because like I said, I, I, I hear that from a lot of people, and I I usually tell them, look, just focus on what's most important right in front of you at the time, right? Because they might come to me and say, I've got 20 different things I have to, you know, regulations I have to follow. Which one do I do? How do I do them all at the same time? Well, you can't do all of them at the same time, right? And again, I mean, you've got more experience from, from the regulator's side, but what I tell people, so fact, check me on this too, right? Because if I'm wrong, let me know. But I usually tell them, look, you know, the regulators are more interested in the fact that you're trying and you're working towards that than that necessarily everything is buttoned down. Yes, they want it all that way, but they're going to give you some credit for the trifactor, right? <laughs> Am I saying that no, right to people? Right. Okay. You're saying that right to people with a couple of caveats. Yeah. Number one, uh, that process has to be documented. And mm -hmm. anyone who's ever heard me speak uh, knows that I continually say the three most important things in any compliance program are the following. Document, document, document. Whatever you do, document it. And that way, if a regulator comes knocking, you can do that you as a compliance professional can do exactly what you, Jason, just suggested. Here's my problem. Here's how I'm remedying it. And here's the steps I'm taking. And here's the steps I'm going to take. And that really mirrors what the Department of Justice said in the update, the June 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which it all starts with a risk assessment. But then after you assess your risk and put in a program to manage that risk, you have to monitor that program. And that's the continuous monitoring. And that's what leads to continuous improvement. And that was the first time they really linked the risk assessment to continuous monitoring, but it's it, it's a much more formal way of saying what you just said. 
here was my problem, here's how I'm gonna fix it, and here's the steps I have taken and will take if it's documented. Yeah, so you got to make make sure and document because that's that's the thing too. I mean, I know we, you know, we both did some work with OSEG for quite a while too. And I remember, you know, I think that one of the definitions, or I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, compliance is about documenting and proving that you actually complied with the requirement. So there has to be that documentation side of it. Because again, if somebody comes in and asks you and you're like, well, you know, yeah, we did that. Well, can you can you prove it to me? Can you show it to me? And I think, you know, again, that's probably one of the reasons why now data is so important again, because the data shows or proves that you did it as well, right? And that you are monitoring it and that you are addressing issues when things come up, right? It's, it's one way to actually document and, and prove stuff and ties a lot better into the risk assessment, which again is interesting. And that's, that's, it's, it sounds like this is the approach that you're suggesting to people too, is look, assess what's most important, focus on those areas first, and then start filling in as you can, right? So again, it's more of that risk management concepts being brought to compliance. Instead of trying to do everything right away, what's most important and start working, start working through that. And there's even a career development reason to do it. And, uh, took this from a friend of mine who told me that every day on back when we had uh, daily desk calendars in writing. <laughs> Ever those? Yeah. Yep. He would write one to three things he had done that day to enhance his compliance program. And he did it for two reasons. One was, uh, well, three, one, so he had a record he could recall. Two, if a regulator came knocking, he had a note, which he could then show the regulator. See, I wrote this down on July 7th. But equally importantly, when he went in for annual salary negotiations, he had a record of everything he had done. And he would use that in salary negotiations uh, each year. So, and no one could ever say his work had been insufficient because he had a written documentation of one to three things he had done every day to enhance the compliance program. So for career development reasons, it can work as well. Well, and I think it's good too, because sometimes uh, you know, people in, in these professions, you know, it, within companies, sometimes it's, it's, it's pretty hard. You know, I, I, I grew up, my dad was a general contractor. You build a house, you see something tangible, right? I used to build furniture, you know, when I was younger. Well, when you build a piece of furniture, it's something tangible that you can see. At the end of the day, you saw exactly what you did. And there's a lot of satisfaction in any of the trades where you use your hands and you see something tangible. But in, in our professions, they're not really tangible. And so doing something like that seems like not only did it help him with his career, uh, with his salary negotiation, but I'm sure that that gentleman probably had much more satisfaction in what he was doing because he was documenting those things that he was doing. You can't see it tangibly, but if you write it down on your desk calendar, then you can feel good about what you actually did that day. And that provides a lot more job satisfaction, makes us happier in general too, right? Because we can see that we're actually having an impact. We're, we're moving the needle in the way that it needs to go as well. So uh, great stuff, great stuff. All right, so. Tom's got a new book, Compliance Handbook, second edition, available through LexisNexis. So 
we'll make sure in the in the notes down below there will be a link for you to be able to go out and uh, and pick up a copy of that. But you know, before we do a quick wrap up here, Tom, I I always love to bring in music when I can as well too, right? So. <laughs> So, so here's a, here's a couple of musical questions, and then we'll kind of end with a with a you know sage advice from Tom at the end. But so if I throw out, are you are you more a Beatles or more of a Stones person? Well, I have to start off with by acknowledging that Ringo Starr is 81 today. Um, <sighs> so he, he's fabulous. Uh, he's the forgotten Beatle he that people do not realize how big of it. George and Ringo, people don't don't give the credit to, but without those two men, the Beatles would have never been what they were. Yeah. So and happy birthday, Ringo. Asked, <laughs> John Lennon said in an interview that they asked him who was the most talented Beatle, and he said Ringo. Yeah. Uh, which really surprised me. Uh, about six or seven years ago, the stars aligned with Ringo playing in Houston on a Friday night and Paul McCartney playing in New Orleans the next Saturday. So, oh, so you get to go to my both. wife and I both. Wow. Um, having said all of that, I'm a Stones guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's uh, funny. Still, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Sympathy with the Devil is my favorite song. Yeah, no, I, uh, when I was younger, I remember, you know, listening to the Stones a lot. Um, love the Beatles, but but yeah, growing up, I was more of a Stones guy because I was I, I liked heavier. Um, the older I've gotten, I mean, I've got respect for both of those groups. I mean, there's some stuff that the Stones have done that holy crap. I mean, but you know, I've gotten more respect for for both of them and what they've done. Um, so yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, and, and, and that's good. It's it's um, it's interesting what everybody has done because. I remember one of the Ringo stories that I heard was um, uh, one of the songs I listened to a lot is uh, Here Comes the Sun. And that was one that, that, that George wrote. Uh, interesting story on that. He actually played hooky one day. He was supposed to be in the recording studio and he said, screw that. And he hung out with Clapton for the day at Clapton's house. And, uh, and he ended up writing this song and then he came in and it was written in seven, eight, which is a hard pattern anyway. But he handed it to Ringo and he's like, Ringo, you got to come up with some way to do this. And he's like, you know, kind of thing. And it's like, just like that, Ringo pulled out that that signature drum track that's actually in that song too, to a song that was, yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of talent in that man. So anyway, I just love bringing up bringing up music a little bit too so and usually one of the questions is who's your favorite Beatles so you already answered that one for me too so I got that but um but yeah no one thing I like to do at, at the end too because you know both both you and I have we've been in our careers for a long time and it's always helpful because a lot of people who listen are still early on in their career so you know if you were to look back now to maybe a mid-20s Tom what advice would you give your younger self now that you've already gone through your career? And so now we're much, we're much wiser uh, in, in, in where we're at. But yeah, what advice would you give to yourself that other people could benefit from as well? Hmm. 
it well, doesn't ha- it doesn't it doesn't have to be like earth shattering either but it's uh i would say uh uh professionally uh master a subject matter um the reason i picked compliance uh in my solo career was that um in 2009 or 2010 uh there were maybe five or 10 FCPA cases. And I could read the FCPA, I could read the case law, I could give Tom's interpretation of both the case law and the FCPA, and it was as valid as anyone else's. Um, Because there's just a very few case law, and it's one of the few areas of the law that there are so few cases. And and so uh, I spent that, that time, I spent basically the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours in writing and learning. And so I had that uh, subject matter expertise, but if you can go niche, you can go very big. Yeah. Well, that's good advice because I know so many people that I, that I talked to, especially earlier on in their career, they want to go everywhere, right? I want this certification and that certification and that certification, which is fine, but what's, what's the method behind it? What's the reason behind it? And becoming truly a master in a particular subject matter will do you well for your career, right? And uh, so that's great advice, Tom. It's worked well for you as well. So uh, yeah, everybody know, everybody yeah. knows you for that now. Uh, but again, it's the, the important part that you brought up there too, that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, you know, that's from, from one of Gladwell's books where it really kind of talks about that, look, it takes about 10,000 hours to really become an expert in something, right? And so again, that might seem like a big thing, but just as we were talking about compliance, right? How do you get 10,000 hours of expertise in something? You start today and you do a little bit, right? And you just kind of get started with it and go, but uh, great advice. Well, Tom, thanks for coming on today. It's, um, you opened my eyes to a lot of stuff too, because I haven't had my head in compliance as much the last few years and so to hear some of the changes to it um, your new book that that came out the compliance handbook second edition um, great stuff for people that are in this area and especially if if they haven't really thought about it there's been a lot of changes the last year or two that they probably should get more educated on start spending some of those 10,000 hours that way so any any last words Tom before we head out so thanks so much for having me on and uh, please buy my book. Yep. Go out and buy, buy his book. Like I said, we'll put a link in the, uh, in the section area below. So make sure you click on that link and go get his book so you can get the nuts and bolts on how to actually implement and improve compliance in your organization. So thanks, Tom. And we'll see everybody on the next episode of Jamming with Jason. See ya. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Jamming with Jason. Keep on rocking in the audit world. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with your friends and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know what you enjoyed the most about the podcast. And you may even be featured on a future episode. When you're ready to turbocharge your leadership development, Join the Briefing Leadership Program where you get access to everything in one place and 
can interact directly with me in the group. If you'd like to earn continuing professional education for listening to today's episode, head on over to C-Risk Academy's video on-demand learning platform at ondemand.criskacademy.com. Not only do you get a CPE certificate, but you will also have access to hundreds of video on-demand learning opportunities. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the individuals and not of their respective organizations.